Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing okay. Most of the show today is taken up by an interview with Cassie Chambers Armstrong. She is a Kentucky senator. She is in District 19. She is my she's my state senator. Uh, very proud to have her as my state senator. Uh, we talked to her about making the transition. She was in Metro Council and won a special election to go into the state center. We talked to, talked to her about the process of, of deciding to do that, why she did it, what she has been able to get done, what she hopes to be able to get done, whether she's been able to work more easily or more difficultly uh, with the uh, Senate and the legislature than she expected. Um, and, and then also kind of what she's working on, what she's hoping to get through the legislature. Uh, you know, she's a smart person, so she understands the, the uphill battle that a lot of Democratic priorities have in the state Senate and the state legislature, but she approaches those with her eyes wide open and knows exactly what she might be able to get done. And uh, it was a really great conversation. I always really enjoy speaking with Cassie. Um, what did you think, Jasmine? Anything you want to say about it? Yeah, I thought it was a really good conversation and just nice to have a guest again. I haven't been on the show with a guest in a while, so nice to talk to somebody else. We'll be we'll be booking people, you know. It's uh we're it's Yeah, uh, we're getting close to that time and you know, we we definitely want to be getting all the statewide candidates on pretty soon, but it, it's not quite election time yet. So we're we're holding off a little bit, but it's yeah it's getting close to that time fancy farm just around the corner yeah. uh before we get to that interview though we do have a few small stories that we just wanted to talk about um stuff about kentucky power stuff about jcps um and, and stuff about sb 150 which is again in the news this time not as good a story as we had last time and another kind of negative story about the uh chfs the cabinet for health, uh, health and family services so let's go ahead and start talking about those so, Jasmine, Kentucky Power proposed an 18% increase in their rates. That's rough. That's a very difficult increase mm-hmm. for a lot of people to deal with. Uh, that you know, They're always raising rates. Rates are always going up. Inflation is a thing that exists even when it's not high. Uh, but this is a significantly larger raise in the rate than, than we saw last time, which was in 2020. Uh, and it was before COVID in 2020. It was January 2020. So according to the utility, the reason why this rate increase is looking the way that it does is because, you know, there are just a significantly fewer rate payers now than there have been historically. Um, not only are there like 11,000 fewer rate payers in total, including mostly like households and just people in general, but they've also lost a lot of their big customers. AK Steel, which is where my grandfather worked all his career, um, and, you know, my dad worked there too, like in Ashland, that is gone. There's a lot of other kind of industrial facilities that are uh, going out in, in eastern Kentucky, as well as like most of the coal industry, which was very power intensive and acquired a lot of power. So a lot of like their demand is decreasing significantly meanwhile their fixed costs are just that they're fixed um they do not uh, have the ability to to you know ramp those down their fixed costs you know their their power lines and um you know the the network and and keeping things up and staffed and etc um and, and so those fixed costs aren't changing and they're having to be spread around a much smaller pool of customers um, the reasons for the increase tend to make sense, but at the same time, it's very bad. It's bad that people have to pay so much more for power, um, you know, a necessity for people's lives. Um, as 
you know, if trends continue, this is likely going to increase. Uh, large increases like this will probably become the norm, and it will be harder and harder for Kentucky Power to provide the power that people need, and it will be harder and harder for the people that are left in, in eastern Kentucky to pay those rates. And it can become a vicious cycle where the cost of power leads to increased depopulation, etc. So it is a problem, and, and there, but there are, like, solutions to this problem. If the population does, um, you know, the, the population decline stops and, and reverses, if, po if the population goes up, it, it would go the other direction. If there's more industry, more investment, more people, uh, more, more, you know, companies that have a demand for that sort of electricity, that could change things. And also, and I think this is the, the, the thing that would help the most, additional subsidization of the power company of ratepayers from the state and federal government um you know it would be really hard to get a bill passed in either the federal or state legislature to do that but i think that would be the thing that would solve the problem most directly uh, it's something that we need i don't necessarily think it's something that we're going to get uh and in the meantime mm -hmm. uh, people are really going to suffer so um that that was in the news this week i wanted to make sure we talked about it so jasmine did you hear about this what do you think i had not heard about it <laughs> Um, but it sounds it sounds bad. Um, it, I mean, it sounds like Kentucky Power is in a difficult position, but I mean, like consumers are, are just like in a really difficult position right now, too. I mean, like student loan payments are coming back. People's rents continue to increase, like food costs continue to increase. Power costs are greatly increasing. Like it's it's hard to live. <laughs> It is. Uh, and, you know, inflation is is coming down significantly. But the thing is, like, it's disin it's disinflation, which means di inflation is still positive and high, just not increasing anymore. Um, so it is, you know, that's the way it has to go. You can't go from nine to zero. But uh, it is it is still means that people are paying a higher higher price for things. And that will probably continue for a little bit. So even even while things are looking like they're turning back, to something a little bit more positive, at least in terms of those costs, um, it, it's still really tough, especially especially like you mentioned with a lot of the protections people had. You know, you mentioned student loan debt, but also a ton of people getting kicked off of Medicaid and SHIP because of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the COVID era protections going away. So a lot of those bills coming back, a lot of more fear in terms of like not, not being able to carry insurance because you no longer qualify for Medicare or Medicaid. Um, but, you know, you can't necessarily pay for a plan on the marketplace or having to pay those premiums on the marketplace and not exactly knowing what they cover. So there's a lot of things out there that people um, are, are struggling with. So it's, it's tough out there. Uh, that's that's for sure. So, um, you know, there are solutions to those things, and I certainly hope our leaders uh, wake up to that soon. All right, next thing I wanted to talk about, uh, JCPS, the Jefferson County Public School System. The superintendent, Marty Polio, received a very fat raise recently. His pay bumped from $275,000 to $350,000. Uh, that is an eye-popping increase, but the reasons behind it are, are complicated. So um, we knew he was going to get a raise. Uh, the reason we knew is because it came out recently that he was eligible for retirement, and because of the way they calculate the retirement, his pay at uh his pension check would be the exact same as his paycheck and i don't know about you jasmine but uh no matter how much i like my job if i could not do my job and get paid the same amount <laughs> i would probably do that that's yeah. probably what i would do so you know in order to entice this person who they very much like i think he gets high marks with just about everybody the school board really seems to like him i think most parents 
of children that uh, school-aged children that I know really like him. Even Republican legislators tend to like him, think he's doing a good job. So, you know, he's got a very high approval rating and has the ability to communicate well with lots of different stakeholders across the spectrum. So we want to keep him. So we knew we were going to get a raise. Uh, but the amount did surprise a bunch of people. Um, and, and in fact, seven Republican members of the Kentucky House, uh, they include Jared Bauman, Kentucky, or Kevin Bratcher, Emily Calloway, Ken Fleming, John Hoxton, Jason Nemes, Susan Witten. Uh, those are all Republicans in all of their districts at least touch Jefferson County. Uh, they released a statement saying that the Board of Education is, quote, out of touch with the reality facing our students and the school district, unquote. So I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know if they wanted him to get like a smaller raise or whatever. That is about the cost of one teacher's median salary um, plus $10,000. Um, I, I don't know if they thought he should get less than that or, or what. Expect him to just work for the same amount as he did before and just not retire. Um, you know, it's hard to say what they should have done. It is an eye-popping number, but one thing you should keep in mind is when you divide his salary by the number of students in the system and do the same for all the superintendents across the state, he actually comes in as the second lowest paid superintendent oh, in wow. the whole state. So, you know, there's a ton of students in Jefferson County. Um, and, you know, you're not going to pay. If you if you took his um, per student amount and, and multiplied it by, you know, like, say, you know, even like Boone County, you'd come up with like $40,000, which is not what you're going to pay a superintendent. So um, that that's just something to keep in mind. Um, I don't know, Jasmine, what did you think when you saw this amount? Was it as eye-popping for you as everybody else? And hearing the context of it, does it make you think differently? Hearing the context of it definitely makes me think dif differently because it does seem like a lot of money. But even before knowing the context, like being the superintendent of the largest school district in the state that has always had like a lot of issues and had a, a superintendent that was not well liked by a lot of people before that, <laughs> I I think like it, it's a really difficult job. Um, so I think that they should be well compensated. Um, but I think the con the context helps a lot considering that they do want to keep him and his pension payments could kick in and match the salary and considering what you just shared about the per student numbers. And I don't know, I think the statement from Republicans in the house, like it kind of makes me think back to the Bevan administration and how much Matt Bevan was, was paying the director of IT was that guy. Some yeah. people that he had hired. And so I, I think that's just kind of silly. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like, I don't know. It, it, with that director of IT guy, he was like, well, this guy would make so much more in the private sector. But I'm like, what are you getting for that guy? With Marty Polio, you know, we have, like you mentioned, we've had unpopular, difficult superintendents in JCPS in the past. Like, um, you know, there, there's been several that, that really did not get along with teachers that did not have a high mark from parents. Um, and, and it does seem like Marty Polio, in the face of a lot of challenges, is is doing a good job. So keeping him around seems like it should be a high priority. And so you got to pay the guy. Like, I don't, I'm not going to begrudge the guy for getting paid a lot for doing a good job. So that's at least where I come down on it. Even though, like, that increase being, like, so much more than teachers get, I, I also kind of understand where they're coming from with that. But at the same time, I kind of understand where they're coming from. Uh, yeah. What is up, Jasmine? Tell me what you wanted to talk about today. I mean, like, I don't really want to talk about these 
things because they're not positive. Um, but we're we're going to talk about these things because we we share the news with people. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so first, we're going to talk about the Senate Bill 150 injunction. So um, after granting a preliminary injunction, which blocks the enforcement of the part of Senate Bill 150, which prevented gender affirming medical care for minors. Um, Judge David Hale has reversed that part of the decision based on a decision from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned a preliminary injunction in a similar case from Tennessee. And the Sixth Circuit also joined the Kentucky and, and Tennessee cases into the same appeal. So then Daniel Cameron then filed for emergency relief in the U.S. District Court. And based on the Sixth Circuit ruling, Judge Hale essentially said that his hands were tied. Um, but, you know, this this isn't like the end. Um, this ruling will be in place until the consolidated appeal on the injunctions in Kentucky and Tennessee are heard. And I believe a decision is expected by September 30th. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely it definitely makes you feel a little less optimistic um, knowing, you know, that the Sixth Circuit is more conservative and that they dissolved the preliminary injunction in the Tennessee case, and, and now that's been done in our case as well. Um, but it, it's definitely not the end of the case, and it's not the end of the case on the merits either. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right in terms of like how we're thinking, of, or at least how I'm thinking about this in terms of the long term, which is that, you know, the 6th District is more conservative, but, you know, there is argument that has to be made. They can surprise. And then also just the way that this makes its way up to the Supreme Court, which is kind of where I feel like it's headed. This seems like and it, it could be several years before it goes all the way up there. Um, but, uh, in, in terms of like the real effect on people's lives, like this bill was going into effect and then didn't go into effect and now it does. So there's a lot of kids, yeah. a lot of parents who felt like, wow, okay, we did get some relief here. And then the rug was kind of pulled out from underneath of them, which is not David Hale's fault. It's the Sixth Circuit's fault, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is just too bad. So um, that's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate, I think, for a lot of people who really felt like this was going to allow them to either stay in Kentucky or, you know, give them give their kids some relief and something to like give them some good news about um, when this year has been so full of bad news. So I feel really, really bad for those families um, and, and certainly hopeful, you know, that the Sixth Circuit comes around on this or that it gets it makes its way to the Supreme Court and people um, and, and the folks there, uh, you know, listen to the voices of the people uh, in, in the country. So. I don't know. It's a it's a tough one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the second story um, is about the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. So recently a story came out that children who are in the custody of the state Cabinet for Health and Family Services who have not been placed um, somewhere either like with a foster family or residentially um, that they're sleeping on the floor of the LNN building, which is where like Louisville's cabinet office is. I've seen the story a few different places now, but I think the original article came from Andrew Wolfson of the Courier Journal. Republicans have really like ran with this as a failure of the governor. Um, 
But Republicans have always, <laughs> the last few years, been very clear um, that the legislature is who holds the power here in Kentucky um, and that Andy Bashir is always overstepping and, and that they should be making the decisions. And, and there wasn't anything done um, in the legislative session to address this crisis. Julie Rocky Adams, who's the majority caucus chair and the vice chair of the Families and Services Committee, she's called on Bashir to take action um, and said she's troubled because she called on the cabinet to take action at the end of April. Um, and, and it took months to receive a response back from the cabinet secretary. Um, and so th that's kind of like where this is right now. Um, but it, as someone who worked with youth for several years, unfortunately and tragically, this is absolutely not new. And this happened under the Bevin administration as well, and probably before that too. Um, so the issue here is the lack of placements for children that are in state custody. Um, so it could be the lack of foster care placements, their inability to accept youth who have mental health problems or behavioral issues, um, and the lack of placements for youth who need a higher level of care. There's a lot of different things that go into it, but what it comes down to is the lack of placements for youth who have higher needs. And so like, I don't know, like there's levels of care and I don't, I don't remember like what the names of them are, but I remember like, say someone qualifies for like a level five placement. Well, there may only be one level five placement. And if they don't get in there, where are they gonna go? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that means sometimes that meant that that child was sleeping on the floor until the cabinet found a placement for that child. Yeah. Um, and, and kids are often placed in the custody of the cabinet for missing school for truancy. Um, and, and so that plays into this issue as well. So th there are a lot of reasons that a child can be in state custody. There are a lot of reasons that children can't be placed. There are a lot of solutions to it. Um, and so that, that's something that, the legislature needs to take a look at. There are things that the executive branch needs to do as well. Um, but this is something that's been happening for a long time. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I think that that's really important context that this, this isn't new. This is something that certainly has been happening for quite a while. I mean, I don't think it started with the Bevan administration either. I think it goes back even further than that because CHFS is one of the most underfunded like situations in the whole state uh and and like exactly how you mentioned you know the, these kids are are ones that are the hardest to place or the ones that that have the highest level of need uh and, and finding people who like foster families that are willing to take in families or children like that or just places for them to go um, that are appropriate, even if they're not necessarily a foster family, is just really hard. Um, and, and I have heard so many people in the legislature, especially, um, try to place the blame on Andy Bashir, but I have heard so little about like 
what they wish he would have done to solve this problem. And I think that that's because the main solution to this problem is increased funding for CHFS and for increased money uh, for people who take in these children, increased payments to into the foster care system, increased um, you know funding for places where these kids could get placed so that those places can provide higher levels of care. Um, and, and that's not something that our Republican legislature is willing to do. So, um, you know, it is a real problem. I, I but but one, the last thing I'll say about this, too, is uh, there's a lot of blame to go around. You know, I would like to place it at the feet of the legislature. I, I think it's appropriate for some of it to go into the administration, maybe a little bit. But one pe- one group of people I don't think deserve it are the social workers that are trying to work these kids' cases, because that's a hard job. That's a really, really hard job uh, that is um, – that is, you know, I, I, I also those people don't get paid enough money either. Um, and, and those are the mm-hmm. ones that, you know, they're the ones that ended up having to making make the call about there is nowhere for this child to go. Where are they going to go? And, and I mean, that's really heartbreaking to be like, I guess you have to stay here in this office tonight. Like, I mean, what are they? I don't know what people expect these people to do, what they expect to have happen in that situation. Um, it's really tragic. It's really difficult. Um, and, and we need to do better. We have to do better. Um, but, uh, you know, the people who are willing to complain, um, need to, you know, next year's a budget session. Let's put some more money into this, um, and and try to solve this problem. So at least that's what I have, have to say about that. Anything else, Jasmine? I mean, just one last thing that I'll say about like Julie Rocky Adams being the one speaking about this is she also, in my experience, hasn't been very accessible like as a legislator because you know like i i have worked with youth and was her constituent and have tried to reach out to her about issues this is something that cassie chambers armstrong talks about in her interview about reaching out and trying to meet with your legislators and that's i've tried to talk to julie rocky adams and and it's it's not like i've like you know, sent her emails like you suck I <laughs> or anything. I've been like, hey, I work with juveniles and I'd love to talk about this issue. And I have never, never heard back ever. Um, and and so I she just hasn't really been accessible. And as the vice chair of the Families and Services Committee, you know, I I would hope that this is something that she's working on legislation for and that she would hear out social workers, attorneys who work with youth and different stakeholders on ways to solve this issue. Well, I certainly hope so as well. I mean, a lot of people really like Julie Rocky Adams, uh, but, you know, I agree with you. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to hear that you've had a hard time get a hold, getting a hold of her. Uh, it is really that is very frustrating and disappointing. So, let's hope for better stuff happening in 2024. Uh, solutions to all of these problems and more. Um, not the most optimistic uh, set of news here this week, but we do have a really good interview with Cassie Chambers Armstrong. I think everybody's really going to like it. So, let's go ahead and get to that. Cassie Chambers Armstrong is a member of the Kentucky Senate, where she represents District 19 in Central Louisville. Before winning her current seat in a special election, she held the position of Metro Council member and vice president of the Kentucky Democratic Party. Senator Armstrong is a native of Berea in Madison County and also has deep ties in Owsley County, 
which she wrote about in her book, Hill Women. We wanted to talk to her today about her transition from local government to state government and about the most recent legislative session. So Cassie Chambers Armstrong, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be back with y'all. Yeah, it's been a while. I didn't even think about how or see how long it's been. I think it's been since the, the beginning of 2022. So um, we are happy to share your voice with the people who listen to our show. Absolutely. So, you know, I remember the moment that, you know, election primary election day uh, last year and, you know, Morgan McGarvey, you know, wrapped up the nomination and like uh, the people that I talked to immediately were like, well, who's going to run for Morgan's seat? And and, you know, you you were like the first name out of a lot of people's mouths. But I would say half the people were like, there's no way she would ever do that and uh you know that was uh i will tell you like a a a topic of hot debate uh among (laughs) those of us who talk about those things um and i think a lot of people were confused because you did transition from louisville metro council where democrats have a super majority and can pass legislation and get things done to the kentucky senate where democrats are in a super minority so i like tell us from your perspective why did you do that why did you jump from louisville metro council to the kentucky state senate Yeah, it's a great question. And people ask me that all the time. They're like, what were you thinking going from a super majority to a super minority? We have seven Democrats in the Kentucky State Senate. We could like meet inside a coat closet uh, a lot of times. Um, And it was something that I thought about long and hard before I decided to run for the state Senate. And what it ultimately came down to is at my core, I feel like a Kentuckian. I grew up in eastern Kentucky. I care deeply about the issues that face our rural communities. A lot of my academic work as a professor at the University of Louisville is about our rural court systems and our rural structures and rural poverty. And it's really hard to find authentic ways to work on some of those issues when you're based in Louisville working only on issues that impact Louisville. And I truly believe that a lot of the policies that I was able to be a part of in Louisville, like paid parental leave and childcare and getting led out of housing that kids kids are in, those are policies that could benefit communities throughout Kentucky. And I don't wanna give up on those communities. I wanna work on policy solutions that will help those communities. And so going to the state Senate, being in Frankfurt felt like a very natural way for me to be able to take the things that I cared about that I'd been working on and, and work on behalf of communities like the one I grew up in as well. Yeah, the person that I actually think of the most when I think about making that kind of a jump is this will be weird, but Jim Bunning, who uh, was a U.S. senator, uh, you know, from Kentucky, but a very conservative guy, uh, but was in local government in northern Kentucky in Campbell County and went to the state Senate when Republicans had seven people uh, and was immediately elected minority leader and and said he could count to four. That was how he was able to be elected. Uh, So, yeah, like, I, I mean, having a larger platform. Also, uh, you know, that, that reminds me um, of a lot of people we've interviewed who jumped uh, from, from place to place, uh, you know, and, and the state government is, the state legislature is where a lot of things get done. Um, but, you know, we've seen you work and we know that you weren't approaching the situation naively. Uh, you knew what you were doing with eyes wide open. Um, but I'm interested to know, having gone through the first legislative session with a senator, um, how has the process gone? Has the process of making an impact, of bringing those issues to a larger body, has it been easier, harder, um, based on your expectations uh, going into this? How, how, how did you feel going through this uh, this year? 
Yeah. So this year I actually arrived in the Senate after the bill filing deadline had passed. So a lot of people don't realize there's a date by which all the legislation that's going to be filed has to be filed. And so I didn't have the opportunity to file as many bills as I wanted to. And I would say right now in the interim is when a lot of state legislators are doing the work of drafting policy, of starting to move policy. I will say I've been pleasantly surprised at the bipartisan nature of a lot of those conversations. I'm part of a bipartisan group that's working on maternal health issues. Um, and, you know, I've had some productive conversations. I will say the difference that I've noticed, sort of the most dramatic difference, is uh, in local government, you file a bill and like six weeks later, it can become law. That's how long the process takes. It is very fast and it moves at lightning speed. There's also not this sort of orbit of like lobbyists and advocacy groups and, you know, all these people sort of tracking the legislation as closely. And so things just kind of move on through. Every bill that's filed gets a committee hearing. Every bill that's filed gets a committee vote. Every bill that is filed gets a vote before the full body. That's very different than Frankfurt, where a bill has to be assigned to a committee and only a very small fraction of the bills that are assigned to committee get votes. Uh, it has to receive favorable expression to go to the full body. And then even if it makes it through that, it still has to go to the other chamber. And so it's been really interesting seeing how the structures are different. There are also just a lot more eyes, a lot more advocacy groups, a lot more sort of parties involved in the process. And so it is inherently slower, I think, than local government. And so there are some times I miss those days of you drop it in the hopper and then, you know, six weeks later it's signed into law. Yeah, uh, having come in in the middle of it certainly did make an impact for sure. Uh, I, I do think like it is just really, really difficult as a, a Democrat or a progressive Democrat, especially to, to get anything through the legislature. Um, you know, next year will be different. The future will be different. The, for the longer you're in the legislature, you know, the 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 the, the more different the process will get. And I'm just kind of curious for your perspective as you look towards the future, um, as you look towards getting some of these things that you worked on in Louisville uh, in front of a broader audience, in, in front of a um, a, you know, a, a body that can make an impact across the whole state. How do you see that changing? Do you just think like having being able to be there for the whole year is going to make a big difference? How important are these election cycles where, you know, you may not be able to get to a majority of Democrats, but you might get nine. I uh, shoot for double digits. I don't know. Someday. <laughs> um, how important is like growing the caucus and growing, um, you know, the, the Democratic, uh, you know, side of the, the, the Senate? How important is that in, in terms of getting your your priorities through the legislature? Growing the Democratic caucus is key to being able to advance these policies. We need more votes to be able to pass our policies into law and, quite frankly, to be able to say, OK, let's think about some of these policy proposals as a, a package deal. Let's actually have conversations around how we compromise and have bipartisan legislation on some of these issues. Um, you know, I think in order to do that, that doesn't happen on its own and it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And we need to do a better job of communicating to people about what we stand for, not just what we stand against, which is also very, very important. I do believe when you're in a super minority, one of your roles in the legislative process is to bear witness and to be a voice for people who feel as though they are having their rights and their democratic will trampled on. I also think it's really important to put out a vision of what it would look like, what a vote for a Democratic senator actually means. And so I've had some really good conversations about what would it what what are our legislative priorities? How do we begin to strategically organize these and put them out in a way where people know, okay, if I vote Democrat, 
this is actually what their legislative agenda is. I think people, especially in, in some rural communities, have this idea of what the democratic platform is, but then you you take it to them and you're like, look, we're, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about jobs, we're talking about protecting workers. These are things that people can get behind. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that you're the first legislator that we've talked to since the end of the 2023 session. And the most recent session included a lot of pretty painful legislation, especially around LGBTQ plus issues and the rights of teachers and parents. Um, and it included a lot of procedural twists and turns and a lot of last second maneuvering of bills. Um, so what was the process of watching a bill like Senate Bill 150 move through the legislature like as an actual senator? Yeah, um, I will say before I gotten sworn in, one of my friends who's a state representative had said, don't underestimate how sort of emotionally draining it is to feel powerless in this process. Yeah. And I remember when I heard that, you know, I had thought I'd had some tough policy battles on Metro Council, and, but I was largely able to sort of focus and say, okay, this is the job. This is sort of like a, it's a work setting. It's business. You know, you can go in and, um, and do what needs to be done. I was surprised at how emotional it can get and how difficult it can feel when you have people who are reaching out to you and saying, I believe that this bill is going to hurt my child. I believe that my child or my friend's child, that they they might die because of this legislation. Um, I am going to leave the state because of this bill. Those are really heavy conversations to have and to then feel powerless to deliver results for those people is really tough. It can be really tough to feel um, like you can't do the things that you want to do. And in some ways, the things that you were elected to, to make sure that you're helping people. That's why I ran for office is to help people, um, especially when they're facing these really heavy pressing issues. Uh, and so, you know, I took some time after the session to just sort of decompress and reflect on the process. And now I'm right back to talking to those same families and those same groups about, okay, what comes next? Because I think when you feel as though something really bad has happened, for me, I don't want to just sit in that. I want to figure out, you know, how we begin to organize um, and what the next steps are for things to get better. Yeah, it it's starting to seem like, you know, some of the furthest right pieces of legislation um, that some of those legislators that are putting that legislation forward that they've felt emboldened this year. Um, and so there's a lot of fear about what the legislature might do in the future. Is, is there anything that um, you think can be done to stop some of the most egregious pieces of legislation from moving forward in 2024? I do think that it matters when people reach out to their representatives. I believe that every legislator in some way understands that their job depends upon the people continuing to give them that job. And everyone that I have met and talked to in the General Assembly cares a lot about what their constituents think. So I believe that whenever these bills are filed, it is so important that people reach out 
and also help mobilize in those actual communities. Mm-hmm. Find the people that live in whatever county that senator or that representative represents and try to get them to reach out and contact them. I read every slip that I get with a phone message. Um, you know, some days it's a quicker read than others because we can literally get hundreds sometimes in a day. But every legislator gets those and they look at those and they use that to gauge where people are on an issue. And so it is not pointless or hopeless to try to contact your elected officials and tell them what you think. It actually does matter in the process. Um, it's also, I, I always tell folks, you shouldn't assume that your representatives won't meet with you and won't hear what you have to say and won't look at whatever data you have. Our job is to be accessible to folks and meet with folks. So in addition to reaching out and contacting them, ask for a meeting, ask for an in-person meeting and come prepared with stories and statistics and facts. Bring members or materials of an advocacy organization um, if there's one that's working on the issue you care about, because those are the sorts of things that I really do believe can impact the process. Yeah, I definitely think you're right about that. As someone who has Republican representatives, that's something that I've done. Um, and so it it has helped um, with things like criminal justice legis- legislation. So yeah, I agree. People should absolutely do that. Um, so even with with all the bad, that there are always some pieces of legislation that we can celebrate even during the worst session. And um, this year that included bills for legalized sports gaming and medical marijuana. Um, So are there um, any bills that you are happy to see pass in 2023 that we might've overlooked? Yeah. Um, So I was really uh, happy to be a co-sponsor of a perinatal mental health bill that passed. Um, I think there's a lot of bipartisan support around that issue uh, and there's ongoing work in that space. And I do want to return to something, you know, when you said sports betting and whenever uh, you said medical marijuana, I think those are really great examples of what we talked about just a minute ago, where those bills would not have passed five years ago or four years ago. It's taken a Mm -hmm. lot of years and a lot of conversations and a lot of dedicated advocates to move those forward. And so those are great bills and they're bills that passed in part because people did what we just discussed. And so, uh, yeah, there were some, some good bills that passed this session. Um, I'm sure, uh, I'm glad to see that there's lots of work in the interim on, um, some other ones that I think are very promising. Uh, there's going to be a hearing on my bill to get rid of the sales tax on diapers. It's one of the most regressive taxes we have. Uh, that disproportionately impacts low-income families. There is no form of assistance for diaper purchases. You can't cover it with Medicaid. You can't cover it with SNAP. And for low-income families that might have two kids in diapers, that can be a several hundred dollar a month expense. And so there have been a lot of studies that have shown as you decrease the price of diapers, you actually also decrease children's ER visits Uh, because of extreme diaper rash, and you obviously free up economic resources for families as well. Um, And so stay tuned. It's uh, looking like that's going to be heard on the joint A&R committee in September. So maybe some promising news there. 
Well, that's great. Uh, this is usually yeah. like the one hour uh, a week I don't have to think about potty training, but that's over. So that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Oh, man. I, talk, I think about diaper need um, so much because it is one of the most yeah. pressing issues impacting families. And so uh, I probably say the word diaper at least 10 times a day, not when dealing with my own kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one of them is also potty training. Yeah. So, uh, but but that actually, you've already kind of answered a, a piece of what I, I wanted to ask you next, which is, you know, as we look forward to 2024, and, and like you said, you know, this is your first full session, your first real chance to like make a connection with, you know, uh, leaders and committees, et cetera, that, that might be accepting your bills and, and moving things forward. Um, and, and, you know, the positive priorities that you have, stuff that you're hopeful that might pass. Uh, what are some of those things that you are working on? What are some of the things that you're laying the groundwork for that, that you know, like you said, sometimes things take three or four years. What are some things that you're going to try to get started um, so that we can start thinking about them and then in a few years we might be able to actually see them pass? What's on that list for you this year? One of the bills that I'm really excited to work on is a bill uh, to look at these PFAS chemicals, these polyfluoridated substances, the forever chemicals. We know that they were recently found in the Louisville water supply as well as water supplies throughout the country. Uh, the federal government has proposed regulating the amount of these chemicals in our water supply. And that's because these chemicals, which, um, you know, come, they're often used in um, things like uh, flame resistant coatings. They are in cookware. They're in firefighter foam. They're in all kinds of, they're on upholstered furniture. They're everywhere. Um, they end up getting into our environment and they're linked to increased uh, risk of cancer, uh, to all kinds of health problems. And so we have some work happening in the water space that's really promising, but there's not really a lot of work being done in the rest of the environment. Um, and so one bill that I'm working on looks at the other ways that these PFAS chemicals get into our body. So PFAS coatings are on a lot of products for children. It turns out that as those linings degrade over time, they turn into dust. Kids put them in their mouths. Uh, kids are more susceptible to PFAS exposure because uh, they're smaller, they're growing. A little bit of exposure is more impactful to them. And so looking at how could we make sure that we aren't putting our kids at risk, uh, turns out another source is things like cosmetics. Absorption through your skin can be just as hazardous as drinking it in the water. Um, and so I'm really trying to take a comprehensive look at these substances and how we make sure that we have a healthy environment and we're also protecting the health of individuals. Um, I have another bill that I'm really excited about around breastfeeding accommodations for students in public high schools and public universities. Um, have a bill that I'm working on around uh, childhood hunger and access to meals in schools, expanding access to meals in schools. Uh, and so a lot of exciting things that I'm hoping I can build some bipartisan support on and um, you know, get get good policy ideas out into the public. I think that's what legis that's part of your job as a legislator too is to say, here is what like good policy where you've consulted all the stakeholders and you've looked at all the data and you've pulled it all together and here's a bill that could be a good thing um, and just sort of injecting it into the public conversation. Yeah, we'll be looking out for those bills when we do our good bill segment during the the next legislative session. So you've moved around a lot since our very first conversation several years ago. Um, do you see yourself settling down into your new role as a state senator? Yeah, I am really happy where I'm at. And 
I believe that there's a lot of work to be done in the General Assembly. I think that there's infrastructure to be built to win more seats for Democrats. I think there's policy work to be done to start setting a policy agenda and uh, doing the long-term work on these policy priorities. And so, well, I've always said, I don't wanna be one of those legislators who sticks around for decades and decades because I don't think that serves anybody. Uh, I hope to be there for a long time and I hope to be able to make progress on the issues I care about. You know, they're always looking for people to run for those uh, constitutional offices. So, you know, that's not for four years. So we can, we can talk about that <laughs> later. Uh, you know, you aren't on the ballot again until next year, um, but you're always working. Uh, you know, you ran in a, a pretty much a layup uh, special election and uh, we're super organized and had a ton of things for me to do. So, uh, you know, that's <laughs> I know that's always on your your mind. Uh, so, uh, you know, is there any, anything anybody can reach out to you about, first of all, about those bills that you talked about, uh, anything that you need done um, if people are passionate about any of those ideas, how can they get involved there? But then also if they want to help you as, you know, your campaign starts, um, how are ways that people can connect you with you on that level as well? Yeah, uh, I love to hear from folks who want to engage on the legislative work. Um, if people have ideas, expertise, just want to tell me their thoughts on things. Uh, very easy to find on the LRC website. Um, and I answer my own emails. People sometimes act surprised that, you know, we answer our own emails. We, you know sometimes have help with our calendars, but like we set our own meetings. We, you know, we're responsive to folks. Uh, so I'd love to hear from anyone who wants to learn more about those bills or weigh in. Um, also my campaign website uh, has all of the information to contact me about getting involved in the campaign and always love seeing folks um, come out and engage. Uh, you know, I think campaigns are a really great way to learn about that side of democracy. It really does matter that people show up and that they go and that they, um, tell people about candidates that they support. And so um, always happy to have folks come and volunteer and learn a little bit about how democracy works. Absolutely. Also a great way to meet your neighbors, you know, knock on their door, tell them to vote for Cassie, which is uh, yeah. what I do. Um, all right. Well, Cassie Chambers Armstrong, thank you so much for joining us today. We, we really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a sporadic newsletter that you can subscribe to at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.